You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Hey, Evan. Max, don't laugh at me. I'm being high energy. You're so high energy right now. I That's love the it. highest energy I've ever had on this entire thing. It's going to be an incredible episode of the podcast. Hey, guys. Uh, this, we got, who, who do we have this week? This week, we have Eli Sanders, although this is an interview that I taped a while ago when I was in Seattle, and we've been waiting to unleash it on the world. I'm excited, because I did not know that until right now. Yeah, uh, Eli Sanders of The Stranger, Alt Weekly in Seattle, also Pulitzer Prize winner. I'd like to say hello to our uh, new audience out there. Uh, we moved the site um, from a Tumblr onto the uh, longform.org proper, and it seems like we got a lot of new people. So if you're uh, listening to this for the first time, uh, check it out on iTunes. Check it out in Stitcher. And our sponsor this week is Tiny Letter. Tinyletter.com. Uh, a simple and profound way to... No, no, not. it's not profound. It's profoundly simple. And it's also powerful, and it's a great way to send an email newsletter. It can be profound. It depends on what type of email newsletter you're sending. I got an email newsletter today that was not profound. I'm getting a lot of email newsletters from um, corporations wishing me a Merry Christmas today. They care about you. It's beautiful. Uh, and Merry Christmas to all our listeners out there. Speaking of Christmas, uh, the podcast is going on hiatus for two weeks. We'll be back first week of January, whatever that is. Yeah, if uh, if you if you're if you're listening for the first time, um, there's some some great old ones. I definitely uh, highly recommend the David Grant episode, uh, Tanahasi Coates, excellent. And um, for new people, also this uh, podcast produced by Longform and the Atavist. I heard the Atavist has a new book out this week. We do. We have a new title out on Friday the twenty. What is that? Friday. This Friday. 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 Coming Friday. New story out. It's called Half Co- Safe. It's Cop by it when it drops. <laughs> it's called Half Safe. It's by a writer named James Nestor. It is about the most incredible adventure of the 20th century that you've never heard of. Just check yeah. it out. com. That's a good tagline. Also out this week, what do we have, Max? Oh, yeah. We put up the uh, best articles of 2012, which almost killed us, but now it's up. Uh, you a got a lot of good reading on there. You got there. the top 10 of the year. You got um, top fives by topic, sports, tech. Um, top 10 most clicked stories of the year. Uh, it's great if you're catching a flight or need some reading yeah. over the holidays. Pam Koloff, who has been on this podcast, the only person to be on the actual top 10 and the top 10 most clicked of the year. It's like a, it's a, there's a good distinction. Yeah, she's awesome. 
Uh, okay, here's Eli Sanders. One other note. Uh, this was recorded before we understood sound in the perfect way that we do now. It's a little spotty in points, but uh, I think it's worth it. I am sitting here with Eli Sanders, associate editor of The Stranger. Is that right? That's right. In Seattle. I'm actually in Seattle sitting at The Stranger offices. Um, it's really good to be here. Eli, thank you so much for, for coming down. Sure. Welcome to Seattle. Welcome to the fabulous Stranger offices. If people could only see how tiny this room is that we're sitting in. Oh, it's palatial. What are you talking about? <laughs> right. Beautiful. Just, just don't try to spread your arms because you won't be able to. We've got an incredible view. We can see all of Seattle. It's <laughs> right. It's really um, wonderful to be. I, I think I may have misspoke there when I introduced you because I did not introduce you as a Pulitzer winner, Eli Sanders. Is that is that your formal title? Now? <laughs> uh, if, if you want to use it, it's fine. It's, I'll take it. Sorry, I should say the story that Eli won for is called The Bravest Woman in Seattle, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, but if you haven't read it yet, uh, you might as well just stop listening to what we're doing and just go read that story because, uh, yeah, you should you should just read it. But anyway, okay, so were you, did you have your hopes up? Well, I, we'd nominated it, and that, honestly, on my end, that was in response to a lot of people around here saying, you should nominate this. And it, eventually, it you know, enough people said it that I was like, okay, I, we'll do it. Mm-hmm. I didn't have high hopes that it would actually happen. I wasn't even sure that they would consider The Stranger like a... I think one of their criteria is, you know, a reputable publication. <laughs> I, I wasn't even sure that they would consider us that. We've never, you know, won a Pulitzer before. Did so. throwing a porn festival make you automatically not a reputable publication? Not in my mind, but, you know, I had no idea exactly who was making these calls. And so, uh, it, you know, you can imagine people who might think that was a disqualification. Maybe it was a selling point. <laughs> um, but... So I, I knew it had been nominated, and, you know, I, I believed in the story. I didn't and really couldn't let myself believe that it was going to win this prize. How do you find out? Do you someone call you? Do you get a text message? No, that's, that's the funny thing. You know, I, I thought that they might communicate in advance somehow, um, but they hadn't. And I was curious who might have won. So I went and loaded the website at, you know, the time that, that it was like 3 o'clock Eastern, noonish uh, West Coast time. And then, you know, there was my name there. So I was like, well, I, it didn't really make sense to me at first. You know, it was like one of those things that you couldn't... It was kind of like a moment that you observe a lot as a journalist, actually, where people are so dazed they can't process what's happening to them. You know, I, I felt right. like... You were I, in shock a little bit. Yeah, 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 I guess you would say that. Like, I just did not... You're allowed to be in shock when you see your name on the college site. <laughs> yeah, I didn't believe what my eyes were telling me. Mm-hmm. So I took it, you know, took my laptop over to uh, Christopher, the editor's office, and had him actually load up the page on his computer to make sure it wasn't some, like, crazy fluke or prank or something weird like that. And he had the same reaction. He called someone else to, like, load it on their computer. And then, you know, about that time it started to said in that like oh wow this is this this did happen and uh wow and then you know uh my inbox kind of exploded and the phone started 
uh, ringing, and and off we went. Right. So what happens next? Right. You you uh, you go to the like only break in case of Pulitzer champagne case. <laughs> start pouring it over yourself. And right. You just want an NBA championship. Yeah. No. This is the hilarious thing that I learned in New York when I was there for the um, ceremony in uh, May. That essentially every major newspaper, especially in Manhattan, does have like the break only in case of Pulitzer case. <laughs> you know, it's like the refrigerated break only in case of Pulitzer case. <laughs> right. And they sit there and they watch the announcement live. And um, and then as soon as it happens, they break the case open and, you know, the champagne comes out and they celebrate. I mean, we were not prepared in that way. You know, we didn't. I Only Christopher and I really knew that this might be a possibility. And, and I don't think either of us really thought it was going to happen. And so um, the Seattle Times uh, made a point of noting this, you know, that in their story the day after our, our man not managing it, our business manager went out and uh, got some champagne at the liquor store nearby and a kind of fluke of timing. The state liquor stores were being privatized. Um, their stock was, you know, way down. The shelves were bare in all the liquor stores around here, so she didn't have much of a choice and ended up with, you know, as the Seattle Times very clearly pointed out, a very cheap bottle of champagne. <laughs> <laughs> but she came back here with it, and um, and we had some of that, and I, I called the woman who was the subject of the story that uh, won the award, and we toasted with her on the phone, and then she actually came by uh, not long after that. Oh, that's, she showed up that day? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that must have been a... Uh, that must have been a wild moment. What, what was her... Well, I guess maybe we should... For anyone who hasn't read The Bravest Woman in Seattle, uh, you, you really should go read it. Uh, but but maybe, Eli, you could just give us a, a sort of uh, rundown of the story. So the story was about the trial testimony of a woman who had survived an incredibly brutal attack on herself and her partner in their home in a neighborhood called South Park in Seattle in July of 2009. And the trial uh, of her attacker, the man who invaded the home she was sharing with her partner, raped her and her partner repeatedly, and then attempted to kill them both, um, succeeding in killing her partner, whose name was Teresa Butts, but not succeeding in killing uh, Jennifer, who was the woman who survived. Uh, So Jennifer, the survivor, testified at this trial that happened in uh, the summer of 2010. And the testimony she gave was just uh, remarkable. It was, it was, it it compelled uh, the kind of narrative that I ended up writing about it, which is the narrative that ended up uh, winning the award. And but uh, for context, I mean this was a this was a pretty big local story. This was something that all the TV stations had covered and mm-hmm. and the daily had covered and you had covered previously too. I mean it's a story you've been following. Right. This we're you know we're sitting here at the beginning of July and we're coming up on the third anniversary of uh the attacks which were which were July 19th, 2009 and so when they happened, yes, local TV was covering it, so it was the newspaper, in part because in addition to the horror of the crime itself was the fact that the killer hadn't been caught yet. He was on the loose. There was a, a manhunt that lasted, I think, for about a week, maybe a week and a half. I can't remember exactly. But, you know, a long period where um, a, a rapist and murderer was 
walking around Seattle and people were very, very worried about, you know, whether he would do something like this again and where he was. Uh, so I, the initial story that I did in July of uh, 2009 was about the neighborhood that was terribly shaken by this, about the two women who had been attacked. And, uh, you know, I tried to sketch as best as I could at the moment who they were and, and how connected to this neighborhood they were, because this was this was something remarkable about them, the number of lives they've touched, that they had touched in this neighborhood. Um, and then I was also sketching the hunt for the killer, which actually resolved while I was writing the story. And so the story actually ends with his capture. Yeah. And he, he they caught him in North Seattle. Yeah, they caught him in North Seattle uh, near a park called Magnuson Park. And through an interesting bit of detective work, the man who committed these crimes had quite some time before that tried to break into Auburn City Hall. Auburn is a city south of uh, Seattle, and he had left some DNA traces during that break-in. Now, at the time, it was just some, you know, new police detective on the Auburn Police Force investigating a break-in at the City Hall that hadn't gone anywhere. But he took a DNA sample, bagged it, sent it to wherever they store these things for unsolved cases. Um, There was also some video accompanying this break-in, but it wasn't you know, it didn't lead to any arrest at that time, but that video was stored, and, you know, someone just put it in the vault wherever it is, and that was that. The Um, the random break-in vault. mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) yes. I think that may, you know, that may be the technical term. (laughs) So uh, when this crime happened, there was quite a bit of DNA evidence that was left at the scene of the crime, and so eventually, and this took a little bit of time because of state budget cuts and uh, cuts that affected the state crime lab, but eventually they processed the DNA from the scene, got DNA connected to the suspected attacker, ran it through a database, came up with this hit from this unsolved burglary quite a while ago, found the video connected to the burglary, made a still out of that, you know, still picture, and also gave the video to everyone, the TV stations. They gave a YouTube version to us of the stranger, <clears throat> and then the what ended up being the most helpful thing that they did in terms of catching him was they sent a description out to every bus driver in King County. Wow, we're in King County right now. Seattle is in King County, and they actually have a, a very smart system for doing this when they've got a manhunt. Did you know walking out of there that that was the, that you were going to write a story, a narrative story based on her testimony? Was it something you worked on for months and months? How, how did that work? Well, I, no, I didn't know what I was going to do with the trial. You know, like I was saying, I'd written about this before. I'd actually written two long stories about this, the one that I was describing that ended with right. the capture of the killer, and then not long after that, one that looked at the, at that time he was just the suspected killer and rapist, but, you know, obviously ended up being convicted but I looked at his trajectory and the cracks in the state mental health and criminal justice systems that he'd slipped through on the way to committing these crimes. But all, all of which is to say that I had, I had written quite a bit about this before and um, quite a bit, you know, for what the stranger normally runs on any one uh, individual crime. And so I was interested in this trial just because I had connected to this story but I didn't know what I was going to write from it. I just started attending the trial. Mm-hmm. And I blogged about it. 
we have a blog that's very widely read in the city and then also, you know, has a pretty good audience nationally. But this was a story that was, you know, more relevant, uh, more immediately relevant, I guess, to people in Seattle who had memories of this this actual crime. And um, and I was interested in the outcome. And so I, I did blog dispatches from the trial and I just kind of waited to see what would happen. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, you know, as the title indicates, what happens is this incredibly brave woman tells the story of what happened to her on you know, the worst night that anyone could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment in the story where you haven't mentioned yourself at all and then talk about how the entire courtroom, including everyone in the press, was breaking down and... Uh, I don't know. I don't really have a question, but that was. That's uh, I, I reread the story before I came in today, and it just. <clears throat> I don't know, man. That, uh, you deserve to win the thing. I think. Thank you. A lot of people have remarked on that moment in the story, and I. Um, you know, it's it's shown me in a way the importance of, uh, letting people know that the narrator is human as well. Yeah. You know. It, it, the moment you're describing is just a very brief moment in the story where I... And it's late in the story. I mean, it's like, you know, two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's in part because the story begins not at the trial, but, you know, with... And I, I wanted to do this with, you know, the story... <coughs> excuse me, the story of how these two women met mm-hmm. and their love, which was incredible incredibly strong and and you know I think the word I used in the piece it was just sort of exploding that summer they had planned to be married later in the summer and so I, I talked about that and then uh, moved to the trial but yes there was a there was a moment and there were a number of moments there, but there was one particular moment in the trial which I described where you know n- no one who was in the courtroom could not be affected by it there was no there was no cause for and no, I don't think, no, there was just not any human ability to be detached from from what was happening in front of you, what, what, what was being shared. And it was so painful. You could not help but cry, and there was no reason to deny that that moment had happened. So I, I you know, I share that moment very briefly in the story, but um, uh, it connected, and I'm glad it did. Was it a piece you worked on for a long time? Did you, how long after the trial did it run in the paper? It ran in the paper during the trial, actually. Really? So, yeah. So, like I said, I was blogging about the trial and, you know, I guess you could call it the centerpiece of the prosecution's case um, was the testimony of Jennifer, the survivor of the attacks. I, as I was saying, I didn't know what, if anything, I would write out of this other than blog posts, but uh, when she testified, it became very clear that something should be written, and she she testified on a Wednesday and a Thursday. You know, her testimony, this, this really uh, struck me, that her testimony took many hours over two days, you know, longer, longer to relive the attacks in court than the attacks actually lasted, although they lasted quite long and were horrifically brutal but her reliving of it was um, 
the quality of her bearing witness to what happened to her and her partner was so compelling and important in my view it, it had to be written about in the stranger production schedule you know we come out on a Wednesday so we run kind of Wednesday to Tuesday is our deadline she testified on a Wednesday and a Thursday um, it became clear that we were going to write about it uh, during that time and I wrote it Friday Saturday Sunday and uh, we put it in the paper that week and the trial then continued I mean, the defense that had to present their case, the prosecution wasn't done with its case. A verdict wasn't delivered, I think, for a couple of weeks, if not more, wow. after that. So this happened in the middle of the trial. Were people sitting there reading it, like, on breaks? Was there, were you having conversations about the piece with the people who were involved in the trial? Uh, in a very circumspect way. I mean, everyone who is directly involved in a trial is very careful not to do anything that could cause uh, a mistrial in sure. any way. And so the, the attorneys have to be careful about how they communicate with me, uh, the witnesses as well. And so, you know, I had some conversations with, uh, with people who were watching the trial, but uh, not, not much with the principals. I mean, I did hear, um, I heard that it had uh, been that Jennifer, the woman who gave the testimony, felt that it was a good portrayal of what had happened. And she actually ended up writing a letter to the Pulitzer Committee about uh, the piece and, and how it, she had felt about it. Um, well, so we can we could probably talk about that story for a much longer. You should I'll say this for like the nineteenth time. <laughs> Just go go read it if you haven't. I, I I actually I mean I I really do feel it's very hard to describe this verbally. You know, yeah. Uh, like if, if you're interested in it, it's it is hard going, but it would be it is better to read it. Well, let's let's talk about a different uh, trial story that you wrote, which is a little bit lighter, which is uh, about the. I, it, the title of the story is The Great news, West Coast Newspaper War. Right. I don't even know if it's that great. Well, it, it was great in terms <laughs> of the characters involved and just the madness at the center of it all. Yeah, absolutely. So this is the, this is the battle between uh, the alt-weeklies of San Francisco, the, the San Francisco Bay Guardian, and SF Weekly. Uh, the Stranger is the alternative weekly in Seattle. Um, <clears throat> why'd you guys write that story? It's like, that's not a Seattle story. Why'd you write that story? Because no one else was writing it, and it was, it was just crazy. <laughs> I mean, we had, and this is not all I do, by the way, is hop from trial to trial. You, this, this is just these two stories that you're picking up both uh, involve trials. This trial that you're talking about now uh, was particularly nuts, <laughs> and the just feud to the death between the SF Weekly and the SF Bay Guardian had just gotten so hammers and tongs crazy that it, it begged to be written about. They were repossess one was repossessing the other's delivery vans, you know, <laughs> one was like, you know, making allegations that the other was funded by the Church of Satan, which I think actually was true in, to a certain extent. Um, it, it, it had just gotten so insane and no one really cared in part because uh, everyone was like, what are you guys doing? It's, t what year was this, 2008? I think it was 2008. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 2008, like, 
the media world is falling apart and you guys are gleefully paying lawyers to, you know, try to ruin each other's lives. Shouldn't you be putting the money into something else? People just didn't even want to talk about it. There's some quote in the story about someone describing it as like two dinosaurs like fighting over the carcass of another dinosaur after the Big Bang. Right. You know? (laughs) Yeah. That was the illustration that we used also. We illustrated that for the piece. But I mean, there is one connection between those two stories, which is that, um, you know, there's a lot in the the great newspaper war story sort of about the state of newspapers and about the state of all weeklies in particular. And, you know, so there, you were also not quite as directly, but you were in that one too. I mean, it was, it was written somewhat from a position of someone who's also in the same industry. And there's a lot about how your paper is, uh, is potentially in trouble, how this whole industry is potentially in trouble. Yeah, and how we're all kind of uh, inextricably entangled. I mean, the stranger, I, I'm remembering the point in the story that you're referring to, you know, the stranger um, is the home of Dan Savage, who writes Savage Love, which is sold in sold to VVM papers, and so we have connections to them. We also have connections to the Bay Guardian, and, and um, we're just all part of this industry that's trying to you know, keep going just like the rest of the newspaper industry and uh, and just from our perspective up here in Seattle, scratching our heads at the amount of money that was being spent, you know, on lawyers in this case and on repossession of vans and this just media, you know, war against each other. And then also just the staggering amount that the judgment had grown to. It was $6 million, right, yeah. after the jury verdict, I believe. And then VVM, because they were so incensed and so convinced they were right, just refused to pay it. You know, and if I can do a little armchair psychoanalysis of the yeah. guys at the head of VVM, I mean, th- this is this is kind of their style. I think people who follow uh, the media business will be familiar with Nicholas Kristof's uh, series of articles about Backpage.com and the underage prostitution that's been going on there and the fact that Backpage.com is owned by VVM, right, right is like right. A, a huge... A company whose you know, business model was decimated by Craigslist and Backpage was their response to Craigslist, basically. Right, and Craigslist, uh, people might remember, was hauled before Congress over uh, escort ads and underage escort ads on Craigslist, Craigslist and essentially ended up getting out of that entire line of advertising. Craigslist doesn't accept escort ads anymore. It doesn't have an, I think they call it adult services. They don't have adult services anymore. Backpage filled that void. Right. And has been generating a tremendous amount of revenue for a company that needs some sort of revenue stream. But now they're getting tremendous criticism and their response has been similar. We're going to fight this. We'll fight this in every court where we can. We'll fight it in the court of public opinion. You're criticizing us, but you actually are wrong and we don't care how mad you are. We are going to fight until we have to stop fighting because someone's forced us to stop fighting. So how are you, well, how are you guys doing? How's the stranger doing? I mean, the stranger is you know one of the one of the great weekly newspapers in the country. Uh, are you guys going to have to repossess anyone's van anytime soon? <laughs> well, here you are in our palatial podcast. <laughs> yeah, room. right. We got our beautiful view of the entire city of Seattle. <laughs> right, uh, right. They're more like a view of the padding on the wall. <laughs> uh, I'm still here. We're still here. I mean, I think that's that's really good in this business right now. Yeah. You know, just, just still being around and still going and uh, still having a sense of, 
vitality, which The Stranger does, is great. Does The Stranger editorially, it's, I mean, it's a f- like a fervently local paper, mm-hmm. but I feel like it has a lot more national presence and prominence than almost any sort of weekly newspaper. Mm-hmm. Is that conscious? How do you guys make that? I mean, like, you know, you're going to cover a newspaper war in San Francisco. There's a lot of commentary on sort of national politics. The blog is pretty national. I mean, you guys mm-hmm. are covering sort of national stories. Mm-hmm. How, how do you balance that local, national? Are you guys, like, the, the like the, you know, the New York Times made a very conscious decision to make themselves like a national newspaper. Are you like the, are you like the local alt-weekly version of that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, my I, I am an associate editor here, but my job is to, like, do it, not direct it right. so much. So, I, and I think in general, we just do what interests us. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's local. Sometimes that's national. The blog that you're referring to is, I think, you know, one of the biggest ways. Slog is the name of it. Slog, the stranger's blog. Uh, but it, it has a national reach, and we it has a good mix of national and local uh, commentary on it. So I think that's what you know draws people both here in Seattle and people from around the country. And it's just got a lot of interesting voices. Dan Savage, of course, being the best known one. What are the stories that interest you? How do you how do you find stories? Well, sometimes they land on me. I mean, sometimes I'm told to go and do a story. <laughs> they, you know, they actually land on yeah, you. Yeah, literally. Uh, and sometimes things happen in the city. You know. Uh, for example, the story that we were talking about at the beginning, the, the um, murder and rapes in South Park that just are crying out to be written about, and, uh, and you, you write about them. That, that one, I assume, you know, for a variety of reasons, you'll never forget, but h- how long do those stories stick with you? I mean, like I, I mentioned to you before we started recording that I just reread the, the great newspaper war story, and you were kind of like, oh, man, I have to like rejigger my memory on right, that one. You right. know? I mean, how, how long do you do you stay in touch with subjects? How, how does that work? Are you? I mean, I guess are, are are you in touch with the bravest woman in Seattle? With Jennifer? Yeah. So one, I guess I should explain one um, one consequence. Consequence is kind of too heavy a word. I, one uh, one outcome of the story uh, that I wrote was that Jennifer, the woman who whose testimony I wrote about had been anonymous during the trial and is anonymous in the story that I, I wrote, but it, as a result of the story and the just tremendous response to it in the community, she decided to come forward and uh, she actually wrote a first-person piece, which I also encourage everyone to read uh, for The Stranger about her her journey and where she is now. Um, but So Jennifer, uh, yes, I'm still in touch with her, and this is a story, I mean, I, you know, like I was saying, we're coming up on the third anniversary of the attacks, but I, I can't imagine this one leaving me. I mean, I, I think this one will stay with me. The Great West Coast Newspaper War, yeah, I had to kind of go back into right. some recesses of my mind to remember the particulars before we started talking. But at the same time, just the other day, I got an email from someone involved in the piece who I, I had had some really interesting conversations with about newspapers, and he was in town and wanted to talk. I mean, I do keep in touch with... Uh, the people whose lives I get into when I when I write these things, um, you know, there's a story that I wrote a really long time ago. It was actually one of the first long pieces that I did for the Stranger about a gay bashing in Seattle, and I'm not in touch with the subject of that story. But I, I 
do wonder where he is and how he's doing. He he kind of moved on uh, to a different state and a different part of his life afterward, and I just lost track of him. But you know, whether I'm actually you know in in communication with the subject of the story or um, not, if it was a if it was an intensely felt story, which you know I think the good ones tend to be, then they stay with you. Yeah, and I mean, and, and uh, do you get into that like, don't shave for a week, like don't sleep surrounded by files, like uh, all of the other, you know, complete stereotypes I could come up with of the obsessed features writer? Like, do you how deep in these things do you get? Can you juggle a bunch of balls? Or are you like, uh, are you all in when you're working on a piece? Uh, it's not pretty. I'll, I'll say that. I mean, it. It, yeah, these things really consume you. Um, I have to juggle a lot of balls because I have to keep blogging while I'm writing features. I, you know, I have to keep doing shorter stories for the paper while I'm researching features. Um, I have to keep doing all the other things in my life. But, but yeah, I, they, they kind of take over your world. Eli, thank you so much, man. I really, uh, I really you. appreciate it. I, I, uh, this was a last-minute thing, and I'm, I'm really glad we got a chance to chat. Me too. Right on. Thanks for listening to Longform. Thanks so much to Eli Sanders for taking the time, for being so patient while we uh, waited to put this interview out. If you're not a reader of The Stranger, if you are not a daily visitor of their blog, The Slog, if you're not completely immersed in all things Stranger, you should uh, you should really change that. It's one of the great newspapers in America. It has been for years. Go check it out, thestranger.com podcast is going to take a couple weeks off here for the holidays we'll be back with a new episode on january 9th if you're dying for something to listen to in the meantime go check out some of the earlier episodes we did david Graham, Tanahasi coates pam koloff chris jones there's a bunch of really good stuff in there uh if you're looking for something to read the atavist news story is gonna be out on friday it's at atavist.com it sounds like it's gonna be amazing i have not read it but it sounds pretty good uh, and if you're looking for something else long forms best of 2012 is up now as our top 10 picks of the year plus our favorite sports stories and tech stories and arts and culture stories and our favorite essays fiction we have a fiction section now on long form and our fiction editors pick their five favorite short stories of the year go check it out longform.org thanks as always to our sponsor tinyletter.com and to our tireless editor lauren kirchner lauren thank you so much for the work you've put in so far uh 2012 has been great we're really uh we're really enjoying doing this show and uh we'll see you in 2013 i'm a fool to do your dirty work oh yeah Thank you.
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.